Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. You want to start? I want to start and talk about our little, um, little boy who, at a very young age, was connected to, like, the other side. Uh, I have read that when you are connected to the other side, especially in your, when you're really young, is, is the time. Yeah. And, and there's all kinds of kids who, there's stories about it. People have written books about it. Um, psychiatrists have seen kids. I've talked to many uh, doctors who have, who practice pediatrics who have had kids tell them stories. And our little guy at a very early age was telling us all kinds of things. He would say to me, mom, Last time you weren't my mom. I was like, what? <laughs> Last time I had a different mom. Or he'd say, um, when he was two years old, he told me a story about his sister getting in a car crash and burning in a car fire in the bayou. I don't think a two-year-old really has bayou in their vocabulary unless you live by a bayou. I was in a plane with him and he said at that age, he said, dad, this, this one's not going to go into the ground. And I looked at him, I said, well, that's good news. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, how do, what do you mean? Do you, do you remember one going around? He goes, yes, it went into the ground and then dirt covered us. And I thought, oh my God, that is a terrible way to die. And I have a fear of flying. So it was, it was the worst, <laughs> but I felt very safe on that flight. So, you know, He's had some times, but we were in New York. We, had, we, when we go to New York, we stay at a, a friend's apartment and very uh, generous friends. Thank you. Very generous friends <laughs> in the Upper West Side. It's pretty sweet living up there. So we were, we have the opportunity to stay up there. And, and one day Henry's glancing out the window and he says, oh, hey mom, my friend Jacques climbed to the top of that building and then jumped off. But he didn't go smash on their ground and die. He actually bounced. Yeah, he. So it's the. And we're it, like, what the fuck? <laughs> we're up on it's like seventy fourth and Broadway, and the, it's a pretty famous building. It's now people live there now, but it was the Ansonia Hotel back in the day. Pretty pretty well known building. Um, and we're like, oh, so he climbed up it, and then he went off, and then he, but he lived. And he said, yeah. And he said, but then later he. He, he died. Um, where are the places where we catch the train? Remember he said, where are you? And we said, the, the subway station? He said, yeah. Then he died down there. We're like, well, that's crazy. And then our friend Kathy came by. Yeah. New York resident, lived there all her life. And she's listening to this story and she's scrolling through her phone. You see where this is going. Well, and she, she does a lot of research and whatnot. Like she's very well versed in the, uh, she, she digs up a lot of facts yeah Kathy and that that building next door is a very famous famous building it's a famous yeah. bathhouse in the basement and it's just like just got a lot of history to it well this guy named Jack who was a French descent of some kind he had so, a French last name so clearly probably went by Jacques had scaled that building it wasn't that he climbed in the up the stairs he like 
like climb the building or something from the outside. And then he was going to jump. And so everyone stopped, you know, everyone waited and was like, I hope he doesn't jump to try and talk him down. And then I guess he did. But by then the fire department or whoever had put down the, uh, the big trampoline, trampoline, the big cushy thing that you land in and he lives. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. Today on The Doctor and the DJ, we're going to talk to a musician, producer, drummer, writer, music instructor, uh, ordained Zen monk, Barrett Martin, who is a drummer in, uh, well, one of the greatest bands uh, ever to come out of the Northwest, Screaming Trees. We're going to talk to him about uh, the Mark Lanigan book he finds himself in and what he's been up to in this brand new album uh, called Still Point, which is just a beautiful record that you are going to be listening to throughout this podcast. And we're going to give you a full song at the end, as we do here on The Doctor and the DJ. We're also going to tackle religion today and just prove if God's existence is true or not, because we figure it's the holidays. So, you know, what the hell? of our little kid and his superpowers or so you got me a book and it's about a kid who keeps drawing world war ii pictures like pictures of planes and he knew all these people and he's telling his parents his parents are very religious his father in particular and is just not having it he's so skeptical that he has to research it and he has to find out it's kind of good right that he just doesn't believe his kid in a way like i gotta find the answers well every time he finds an answer this kid can tell you things about this uh, aircraft carrier and this plane and people he flew with and details uh, that a lot of people have, who've remembered past lives can't even come up with. It is insanity. And I, I read that book and it was after all this happened with Henry and I believed what Henry was saying. I really believed that. But after reading that book, I'm like, oh my God. And then I just, I kept researching more and more as much as I could about near-death experiences and past lives. And there are millions of stories out there, I would say. But of course, they all get swept under the rug or explained away or it's your imagination. Um, But there's a lot of these stories that it's little kids. It's little kids before they get older. They have a lot of these. Like Henry doesn't do this anymore. No, he doesn't do it at all anymore. It's gone. Like it's not even part of who he is now when he talks about things. But we tell him about this now. Like, oh... And he's very fascinated in it. He believes in that he said these things. But at the time, yeah, I believed him. I absolutely believe him because he was so young. He had no experience in any, all the things he was saying checked out. And I mean, there was no way he could have made it up at that age. I remember sitting with him at the kitchen table, going through some photos, some old photos. And he was like, not really interested. You know, he's just like, whatever. You know, he was on my lap because he was basically a baby you know, and so he was always on my lap or on me or, you know, if he wasn't in like some bouncy thing, I'd put him in. And I got to a picture of my sister who died and he immediately stopped and pointed to her and pointed to himself and picked up the picture and was like showing me. And I was, I took that to mean that like somehow he had encountered my sister. I mean... Take it for whatever it's worth, but I, it was it was profound. 
you know, he didn't give a shit about all the other pictures. And that one he grabbed and was like pointing to. And he was, I don't know, eight months old or something. Yeah, it's he was with the monk and we were driving in India and the monk said, oh, yeah, we knew each other back in the day. And he was pointing to uh, a Gandhi. Oh, right. yeah, he pointed to the statue. He goes, who's, who's that? And he was very little. Again, how old were you in India? He was like a year and a half, two, and a half. two, two and a half. And he points at and we said, uh, oh, that's Gandhi. And he said, oh, yeah, he's a really nice man. <laughs> He goes, when does he come back? When does he come back? That's oh, yeah. what he said. When does he come back? <laughs> like, well, we'll be better off if Gandhi comes back. So maybe he's already here. He could be here. And so when you're running, when you're rolling with the monks, like we were in India, uh, you know, this is just, oh yeah, matter of fact stuff, not even debatable. This is just how it is. It's just uh, reincarnation is, is a done deal. Like they weren't at all shocked or surprised they were just you know they, i mean maybe that because we were westerners and we were so like yep that's our kid he's he's lived these past lives i think spirituality is an interesting topic you know i think that most people believe in something not everybody most people believe in something but a lot of people would disagree about how it is and i've always you know i have my own belief system but i've always I've always said that it's pretty arrogant as a human being to think that you know how it is, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you have certain ideas that resonate with you and that you connect with and that maybe you have experience with and everyone, that's going to be different for everybody. And I think, and I'm fascinated by it and I'm fascinated um, talking to other people about it. And, you know, we've talked about this a thousand times about my rigorous fundamentalist religion I grew up in and what was kind of what didn't agree with me about that religion was they had all the answers they were like this is how it goes this is how it is Is everything else wrong everything else is wrong Mm. we have the truth right and that never sat well with me I thought that's kind of arrogant don't you think (laughs) that's kind of arrogant um But I do have like a sense of spirituality for sure. And I think it's important that you sort of remain open to those ideas and and open to miracles. And I don't mean like miracles, like the frogs are going to like, I don't know. What are what are the big the big giant miracles that people talk about? But like in small miracles, little small um, instances, you know. Well, yeah, it is arrogant, I think. I don't know how anyone has the answer to anything. We tend to do that, right? Like we tend to tell people exactly how things are. And so if you really believe something, sure. Like, but then you also get such a, you know, I, so I wasn't raised religious at all, which by the way, don't ever tell your uh, family members of your Mormon wife that you have no history in religion. Apparently that's the green light to... Oh my God. <laughs> to try to sign up old my John Richards. My family members came after you. I had one. I had one. He's a nice fella. We aren't going to name names, but he he's a nice fella. But man, he was like three chess moves ahead of me the entire time. I didn't even know what oh, I was. Oh, he was going to convert you. Oh, I was, I was, I have no idea. Like he was talking about what I read and, and I, I love history and I, what do I, you know, what in this world do I question? And then by the end of it, it was, uh, I got all the answers for you. Literally, that's what he said. I got a book that has all the answers. Well, I think that it's human nature to try to control things. And so even we know that the Bible, you know, is as of the control of whoever published it, right? (laughs) Like, you know, the Bible is like 
there's there are people who decided what went in it. You know, who are those people, right? We know, you know, they're the Romans, right? What was left out of it? What was edited? You know, you it it's a publication right. that there were choices made of what went in there, what was edited, and there's a whole lot of marketing that went in, that was involved in it. This is what human beings do since the beginning of time. And and so like I'm not somebody I'm not hating on the Bible or anything, but I think that um it's really important to just always have a curiosity about your own belief system and mm-hmm. other people's belief systems. I'm always fascinated. Oh yeah. And and I'm never going to deny someone's lived experience. I, that's not for me to do at all. Like that would be arrogant. Who the hell am I? Like I can't tell anyone what their lived experience is. But um we're also going to have a little bit of confirmation bias. You know, that's a scientific term, but you know, confirmation bias is when you have a belief that you those things show up like what you believe shows up and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what's interesting to me about that is um, hopefully you believe some good shit. <laughs> yeah. I, so good shit shows up. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know me, I'm like, I'm a space freak, like anything to do with space exploration, astronomy, telescopes, all of it, which also means I get freaked out about meteors and things like that. But well, what are you going to do? Um, even that, even everything you see, you know, every story you get back, not every story, but a lot of them are, oh, this new thing we've discovered out in space. It really just changes the way all these rules are now off the table. And I just think it's even arrogant in a scientific way to think, yeah, we, we know how that works. And then you immediately get something that proves a, a planet that like rotates the other direction or you get, you know, this dark matter that you can't understand or radio signals that have been hit, pounding the earth that we can't really just, we don't really understand. It's not from another alien or whatever, but it's just coming from a place in space. It shouldn't be is what they said. How arrogant is even that though? You know, even science can, can fill in the blanks. And, and so I, I think when I even look at space and I think of science and I think of what we really are in, you can't tell me how this universe got here or what's beyond this universe. So that's kind of what I believe. And I believe in what I, I can't understand. Well, I think it's all just incredible. And I think um, at the end of the day, every living thing has something pretty special and magical in them. I'm always fascinated and I'm always humbled by it all. I mean, and sometimes I have the most sort of spiritual or feel good moments when I'm in nature. Like I'm very humbled by it. It's incredible. And it's pretty cool to think of like we're spinning around on a rock that's like billions of years old. We had the um, the pretty well known monk where I sit. Oh yeah, that's stay right. Stay with us and had this. He's the same deal. Nechung. Yeah, Nechung. So the he, Oracle of Tibet, the Tibetan were, State Oracle. Was yep. Crashed in this room where we were recording. in this room. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it still smells like the incense in here. It does. Yeah, yeah. it's. I feel it's a very like blessed room. So whenever I'm creating stuff in here, I feel like someone's looking right. out for me. So one of my favorite things is when we took Nechung and his entourage of nine monks to uh kxp radio station we did we gave him a tour and uh see i i'm fascinated it's like let's get getting back to what you originally said i'm fascinated with everybody's views like i love your family i don't necessarily think the dude with the all the wives and the you know the magic but you know he was having his experience his books and his uh monocle or whatever it is um 
<laughs> I might be mixing things up, but you know, it's your thing. You believe in it. And as long as you're kind to other people, you know, and treat them with respect, um, good. Um, and I remember like the monks and, and Buddhism is fascinating to me. And it's, it, it's been really a eye opening to travel with them or to see them. I remember when they stayed here and they were just so excited about just experiencing everything they could here in Seattle. We took them to Seattle Center, which is where KXP is located. And there was a Native people's um, uh, like dance going on and performance. Like, yeah, it was a First Nations. Yeah, like, um, yeah. It was fascinating. Yeah. And so the monks got up and were watching that as we had our lunch at the food court. And uh, we're watching this dance. It's like, well, this is not something you see every day. We went up to the Space Needle. We all took pictures. It was very fun. And they loved the radio station. I don't think they're expecting... Um, uh, how kind of awesome that place is. Um, but it was, it was, it was really good. And, and the thing I've learned about our particular monk friend is that he's, he just says, you have to practice these things. You can't just meditate on them. You have to practice them every day. And I've learned so much from him. We were, we were trying to walk across, we were in India and trying to walk across this really sketchy path. And there was a woman across the way and she was traveling with the monk, another Westerner. And she was having trouble. She didn't have the right shoes for the situation. I'm telling you right now. I was like, oh, that's not good. And she's trying to get across. And the monk, the monk she was just standing, kind of standing there watching her. And she's struggling. And you see our friend start talking to him <laughs> back and forth in Tibet, you know. And they're, they're having this total disagreement. Yeah, it, this argument in Tibetan. Yeah, in Tibetan, yeah. which is, if you ever get to see two monks argue in Tibetan, I highly recommend it. And so they're arguing across the path. And you see uh, our friend just go... Ah, and he, you can hear him. Ah, and he walks across this path, puts his arm out, helps the woman across. And then the other monk and him argue some more. And then I just turned to him. I said, I don't understand the argument. He says, we can't help her. He's not supposed to. He said, but what are we doing if we're not helping people? <laughs> yeah. The practical. That's what he, he said, always says. The practical. So we have to do the practical. So as much as I can, no matter how much faith I have in anything, it's applying the practical is what I've learned. I, I, I get kind of almost uh, shy about reading someone's bio or I'm going to miss something. And with you, it's insane how many things I could mention that you do, have done, are involved with. You're, you're our kind of people. Very busy man. I, I don't even know where to begin. I'm going to start. I'm just going to give it a shot. And if I miss anything, I want you to fill in the blanks here, okay? You are Grammy Award winning drummer, producer, writer, music instructor, uh, you've played with uh, bands, The Screaming Trees, Skin Yard, Mad Season, Tuatara, Walking Papers. There are so many, I can't even mention those all. So I'm going to give myself a pass on that one. Uh, is it true you were or ordained a Zen monk as well? Yes, that's true. I was ordained in uh, two th 2000, so 20, almost 22 years ago. You started your own record company and you produce books and records, right? The name of that is? Sonata Media. Because we do books, audiobooks, records, and now we're we're doing a film. Wow. Okay. I'm going to put a pin in that one, too, because I want to ask you about that. Uh, in 2017, you published the book, uh, The Singing Earth, recounting musical experiences in different genres and nations. You had The Way of the Zen Cowboy, published in 2019. And you have this, uh, what 
what got us talking again is when you put out a new record. That happens with uh, musicians and DJs, especially when a new album's out. I get a chance to sometimes reconnect with someone. And uh, it's a beautiful new record called Still Point um, that I want to talk a lot about. I, I really like the record. I want to hear the inspiration for that and just some of the songs. And um, I also like, I know a lot about you. I followed your career. Uh, first saw you play in 92, I want to say, um, back in Spokane. And many times since, but I, I was looking up some things and if I miss a band again, if, tell me if I'm correct here. Did you play on the Luna pup tent album? I did, but I think I only played on one or two songs where I played vibes and marimba. So I didn't play drums. <laughs> I played percussion. It's one of my favorite Luna records. And I just yeah. learned this today. Luna is amazing. Yeah. Um, REM clearly, you know, those guys, you play yep. to them. I, then I saw a few that surprised me. Stone Temple Pilots jumped I, out at me. I did. I played a marimba solo on the last song on the, it's their fourth album. And the song was called Atlanta. It's yeah. a really beautiful song. It's like a slow ballad and the album ends with my marimba solo. <laughs> and it was really cool because it got to record at the old A&M studio, which is the old Charlie Chaplin soundstage. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, so I just took my marimba and played a solo and like was in and out of there in a few hours, you know. I played um, the Spanaway album on my show the other way from Seaweed. I yeah. saw you were on that one and I that one on that surprised one. me. Yeah. And uh, Queens of the Stone Age as well. I mean, it makes sense when you're reading, you know, I read Lanigan's book recently and it filled in a lot of blanks yeah. about sort of who was rolling with who. So it, it, <laughs> rolling it, and dumpling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, and I know you're a good guy to have during a fight. So this is, this is all good information I, I for me to have. I my own, I guess. I've, I've been, <laughs> Lanigan put me in a few spots where I had to test that. So I, I you know, I, I'm still friend. I just emailed with him a couple days ago just to say hi and wish him a happy birthday. And I loved that book. I mean, I know it's like a super gritty, shocking, but you know, it's true. And I was there for most of it. I was going to ask his memory is, I know that's probably been brought up his memory, especially at the, the amount of drug use and abuse he put himself through one hell of a memory. If, if all that is, is, as you say, true, I assume it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the key parts of the book, I, they're, exactly as it happened. I was there, I saw it. And what I liked about the book is that he has a really good sense of humor. And I found myself laughing out loud a few times, which might sound kind of dark, but because he had sent me an advanced copy and I read, you know, some of the stories and he asked me if like, I remembered the same thing he did. And I had a couple editions of what I remembered and, and then it went back and forth a couple of times. Um, but I, I said, dude, this is like really funny. Some of this stuff, like it's cause it's just like comedic how many times you did the same thing, expecting a different result. And right. you just got a, a very different result, but not, not the one you hoped for. And, and he said like, yeah, I was trying to like put humor in the whole thing. So. Uh, it's good to hear you like the book overall. I, I took me a, t a little time afterwards to recover after reading that too. But looking back on it, I, I, what I liked in there as well were the friendships that yeah. he had as, as some of them, you know, were not necessarily the healthiest friendships, but reading about him and Lane, yeah. uh, about uh, Kurt Cobain, about Duff McKagan 
yeah. as well. Just and yeah. I already know Duff's a he's a great guy and he, he does he looks out for his friends and, and I, yep. I know that about him. Yep. Um but what I found were the um the loyalties and like the friendships that were found inside of there, even if he wasn't the most reliable dude, <laughs> to say the least. Who's <laughs> reliable no. in a certain way. But, <laughs> I mean yeah. I mean the truth of the matter is is like when you go through those kind of intense experiences over the course of I mean I was in the band for almost a decade. And of course, the band began five years before I was in the band. And um, I think when you go through that, you know, it, it is kind of like this band of brothers thing. Like, you know, you do fight, you do argue and you get pissed off at each other. But you also go through really transcendental experiences and, and it's magical. But it's, there's also, you know, the dark side of it. And you kind of have to understand both sides of that spectrum. I think Mark understands, you know, the extreme of those spectrums. But that's why, you know, William Blake said the, uh, the, the path to wisdom leads through the palace of excess. Not, not success, but excess. <laughs> excess. <laughs> you know, something you two have in common, too, just how prolific uh, you both have been since then. I don't know. Do, do you have a similar vibe when it comes to all the things you're doing? Um, for me, I mean, I, I was much more interested in jazz I really did grow up as a jazz musician. I, that's what I went to school to study. That's what I learned how to play. I played upright bass and drums. Those were my two. And then keyboards, because that's kind of, when you go to music school, everybody has to play keyboards. So I was very inf- influenced by traditional classic jazz, jazz fusion. But then I was kind of a late comer to the whole punk rock and, and even just rock and roll in general. Like I really was like, like in college and did not have a cool record collection. So (laughs) it took me a while to kind of catch up with that stuff. But, but then I had, I I mean, I think I have good taste. I I found the the classic stuff. And, and of course I got a lot of feedback and, and input from people like Jack and Dino, who was my first mentor in the late 1980s. And he turned me on to stuff. And then just being in the screaming trees, I, I was exposed to a lot of stuff. I was only 23 when I joined the band, so. <laughs> yeah, to, to be 23 and not, and and have your musical influences be usually somebody older who had found them and not the rock. And and to have such a play, you, mean, you played Screaming Trees and Skin Yard and Mad Season. Um, I don't know, maybe for them it was nice having somebody who wasn't, you know, just in that rock scene all the time. It seems like you were a guy coming in and people, you know, one thing I was talking to people just how much respect they had for your musicianship and just as a collaborator, like it, it, you can see why so many people had you on the records. Um, and again, it, you said growing up with music, it's rare on any podcast that you would have two people out of the three uh, who have masters in ethnomusicology. <laughs> so both of you, Amy and you, Barrett, are, are you could take Amy, could just take this oh. podcast, just go right ahead. I can just walk away because you two could nerd out on music for the next five hours. Amy, you have a yeah. master's in ethnomusicology. Are you kidding? From where? No, from UW. Oh, right. University that, of Washington. That's one of the oldest and best schools. I actually <laughs> tried to get into their PhD program and they rejected me. Assholes. <laughs> but that's probably because <laughs> it's probably because I, I was accepted there as an undergraduate and I dropped out. So I didn't go uh, back. Yeah, they went, remember those things. They hold grudges. Yeah, they go, yeah. but no, I'm kidding. I have no idea. My dad went there, <laughs> but clearly the legacy didn't work for me. So I mean, you, where you were in New Mexico, is that right? Yeah, I, I went to New Mexico because I had moved there really kind of to do a short term. I was just going to, I rented a house there to, to write an album. 
and I was going to record the album on location because I love New Mexico and have a bunch of friends there. And I found out that there was this really famous ethnomusicologist there. Actually, Amy, you know, you probably know uh, Steve Feld or heard of him because mm-hmm. yeah, we all I read met him. Oh, yeah. OK, well, we all read his books and in, in graduate school and he was teaching there. So I started taking classes from him and I got my master's and I was going to do my Ph.D. there, but it just was too much at the time. And so I moved back to the northwest and my last attempt was at the University of Washington. So I'm <laughs> I'm a failed husky, but I am a, I'm a successful lobo, which is the the wolves of New Mexico. No, I was, I finished my master's and I was kind of towards PhD. And then at some point I went, I'm not writing a fucking dissertation. I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Some point I was just like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found a good balance between continuing to work in music and and I continue to do ethno, like traditional ethnomusicology projects, but I just do them, you know, for, for the benefit of the tribe or the people I'm working with and not for credit anymore. So. Yeah, I I always find that's an interesting question among ethnomusicologists who are white uh, Americans who travel the world and seek to learn and even record and capture. You know, you've probably had all these, you know, discussions before, but I wanted to hear your take on it, like how you feel being an outsider in... um, you know, someone else's culture, and then how you take that, what you learn, and even infuse it into some of the bands you've played with, or some of the music, because I mean, it's a learning experience and an exchange yeah. in and of itself. But I wanted to hear your take on it. Well, we got a lot of that. Let's see, it's now been 15 years since I was in graduate school. But we did talk about that a lot, about the role of, you know, the white Western academic who is going into a traditional indigenous culture to record their music. And so, you know, we had all those classes in like, you know, appropriate uh, field methods and, you know, all of those topics. But what I found, and I'm just speaking for myself, I got into this before I went back to school. So like I studied with a famous family of drum masters from Senegal. In fact, they live in Seattle, but they go back and forth between Seattle and Dakar, Senegal. So I went back with them and I spent two months in Africa with them and also at the University of Lagon in Ghana studying with drum masters just because I wanted to become a better drummer. And I just knew like, you got to go back to the source and learn, you know, the ABCs. And in, in drumming, we call it Africa, Brazil, and Cuba. Those are the ABCs. And mm-hmm. so by coincidence, my second trip was to Cuba as a State Department music diplomat. Like I had an actual State Department visa to go to Cuba to work with Cuban musicians. And I studied with Cuban drummers and religious drummers and drum priests. And then The following year, I was invited to record and tour in Brazil, which was actually with the Brazilian rock band. But I used the time, you know, to study a lot of Brazilian percussion. So I just kind of did that on my own before I went back for the academic training. And then all the books I'd been reading just kind of naturally melded in with, you know, the more academic stuff. And then when I started doing fieldwork, so like my master's fieldwork was in the Peruvian Amazon recording the healing songs of the Shipibo shamans, which are 
an indigenous tribe. They're, they're kind of the largest indigenous tribe of the upper Amazon, sort of in that area that's right before uncontacted tribes, like they're way up north. And, you know, I, I've been there twice now and recorded two albums on location in the village. But we did that project because they invited me to come there. Like I didn't mm-hmm. force myself in. I was invited to produce an album for them. And then they asked me to distribute it because I have, and I still have a deal with um, Sony distribution. So the records went around the world, but a hundred percent of the royalties went back to the tribe, which has been, you know, like many, many thousands of dollars, which for in, an indigenous record in the Amazon is like a huge amount of money and actually translates to a lot of Peruvian soles, which they send their kids to school. They, one of them is going to law school. Another one just started college. Um, it helps pay for their, their medical. I mean, it's, it's amazing how you can take a piece of music or, or several of these songs, put them together as an album package and release it to the world. And it creates all of these other economies So people go down there to do adventure tourism and to buy their beautiful fabrics. And, you know, it it, it has just created all these ancillary economies just out of that that one project. And so I feel like I sort of approach ethnomusicology from an advocate standpoint. If you're invited and they want you to bring your expertise into the field, then you can help them realize something really magical. And in my case, I was able to take the, the, my two worlds of being a, an album producer and then a trained ethnomusicologist. And I could really do, you know, some good work. No, I love it. I love that circulation of resources and building opportunity. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, and over time, like they adopted my wife and I into the tribe, you know? And so mm-hmm. we, I mean, we haven't been back there since 2018, but you know, we communicate with them constantly. We, I mean, we know like a lot more, about them and their way of life than I think, you know, an anthropologist doing their PhD field work. It's like when you spend years of your life working with people, you develop these, they're, they're more than just friendships. They're, they're very trustful relationships. It, it's been a great honor for me to do it. And I think it has really helped raise the profile of, of that tribe. Do you remember the first times you traveled deep into territory that just was outside of your experience? And and what was that like for you? The very first sort of extreme travel I did was in 1991. My dad was working in Australia. It was actually an explosives company for, um, yeah, I know it's like kind of the opposite of everything I'm talking about. But (laughs) anyway, he got me this plane ticket to come down and visit him in Australia. And we went uh, into the outback and went all the way to Uluru, you know, the, the giant rocks in the middle, and a couple other national parks. And I, let me say this about Australian national parks are not like American <laughs> national parks where there's like a safety fence. And <laughs> like Australian national parks have like giant crocodiles like in the river and you can see them and there's no sign. <laughs> you, know, you, just, you just know, like, don't go down there because don't go there. You, you'll, yeah, that's what the national parks are like. So, I mean, we weren't like sleeping in tents, like in the wilderness, although I've done that lots of times, but that was the first time I saw like wild animals and that kind of thing. And was that for you part of this was, was, I want to see more. I want to not just see the music, but 
I want to see these these lands that, that that most of us will not see. Yeah, that was part of it. I had even when I did that though, I had already toured all around the North America it, with with Skinyard in a 1973 Dodge van. <laughs> the engine of which I personally rebuilt because I took <laughs> automotive classes in high school. So I knew how to rebuild an engine. And you can ask Jack and Dino about this. That van wasn't even running when I joined the band. So I rebuilt the engine and we put 50,000 miles on it in the first year. And wow. just, we just went all over the US and Canada. And then we also did a tour in Europe. Uh, a couple of shows we opened for Nirvana. Um, and then we came home and and when we got back, I went to Australia. So I I'd, I'd been like on the road, you know, traveling, and I had the the bug in me. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't know which is more dangerous or more uh, fraught with with <laughs> issues: indie rock touring or adventure traveling. I'm, I honestly don't. I'm not entirely sure. You know what? It's more dangerous to indie rock tour in an old van than it is yeah. to, to like because truth truthfully, like you can travel to a lot of pretty extreme places in the world fairly safely. I mean, I, I think yeah. now it's a lot safer than it used to be, but, but all of that traveling led to, cause from, from Australia, I went to New Zealand um, and I, and I became really good friends just back to Luna. I became really good friends with Justin Harwood and yeah. cause he and I started Tuatara, that instrumental band. Yeah. So I would go to New Zealand and visit him and his friends. And I started doing recording sessions in New Zealand. And then I actually went to Central America on my own, just not, not with any band or with even an, an agenda. And I rented a Jeep and I just drove all around Mexico, Guatemala and Belize, checking out just like ancient ruins and, you know, and kind of learning a little bit about the music, but not any super focused music project. It seems like Barrett, you're a guy who, if you say in your head, like I think I want to get in a jeep and drive all around there, that you do it. Do you? Do you? Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't have that. We talk about this on this podcast that we're trying to make sure people get the most out of this life and and take those chances and and listen to those voices and say you should go do something. Have you always been like that? Have you always been someone who's like, I'm gonna. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing. Yeah, I would say like it's kind of like the Jim Carrey actor like in the movie yes man and just say yes to everything and do it because when i was younger i mean i'm, I'm almost 55 now so this is all, you know i was doing all this traveling in my 20s and into my early 30s and i i just kind of thought you know you just have this one life and regardless of what your spiritual beliefs are i think you have a responsibility to be aware of your country and and of the greater world like what is happening in the world and that does require traveling and putting yourself in situations that are sometimes uncomfortable and maybe even a little bit dangerous and i don't mean reckless not like that but sometimes you know you find yourself in a place like wow this this is a little hairy it could go one way or the other but you learn a lot from situations like that and particularly with with music um I mean, in a, in a way, it kind of ties in with Lanigan's book, because by the time The Screaming Trees wrapped up, you know, in I think our last show was June of 2000, when we played the opening of the, the, the EMP. EMP. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the band had been through so much and, you know, we tried so hard and, you know, we made great records, but we also made a lot of mistakes and, you know, did a lot of kind of our own self-sabotaging. 
I was really done with rock and roll at that point. I mean, I seriously thought I'm not going to play rock and roll again. I'm just going to become a music teacher or something like that. And uh, I mean, that's right around the same time that I started studying Zen, like in the late 90s, and I became ordained. But then, like they say, music doesn't let you go if that's what you're Mm. supposed to do. You can't really quit if you're really supposed to do music. And people would ask me, well, okay, you're not in a band. Would you please play on my record? Or could, could you maybe produce my record? And so I kept like producing records all through graduate school. I just wasn't in a band like on the road where my profile was, you know, in the news, you know, I just was like really doing kind of the most authentic work I ever did, Mm. which was just real academic research, like recording albums in the Peruvian Amazon producing records for great singer songwriters that you've never heard of, but made beautiful records, you know, like I, I really like committed myself to that. And then that funny thing happened where I just, it kept growing and it kept growing and I kept producing records and I, I finally won a Grammy for my production (laughs) for that Brazilian record, which that, you know, it's a, it's a Latin Grammy, but let me tell you, the Latin Grammys are going to be way bigger than the American Grammys probably in the next couple of years. They're I, huge. I, I, yep. Yeah, The music's incredible. It's so much more sophisticated than what we're hearing in this country, both just musically, chordally, arrangement-wise, lyrically. It's just very sophisticated musicianship. And, and so I just kept working with the people that wanted to work with me, which were like not hard rock bands, but, you know, <laughs> really good songwriters and, and very sophisticated musicians. And, and it, so it kind of pulled me back in. What started Sonata Media? When did that start? It started as my, the very first record label I started was called Fast Horse Records. And I started that when I was in New Mexico in school. And that's when I did like those C. Dell Davis Delta Blues records and and I did a West African record and and there were a couple of Tuatar records, a couple of world music records. I mean, it wasn't a very big label. I think maybe I only did seven or eight albums in the first five years. But then when I moved back to Seattle, I changed the company to become Sunyata and it became Sunyata Records, Sunyata Books, and Sunyata Films. And then, it, so the parent company is just called Senyata Media. And to be honest with you, it's more like a production company. You know, I'm not like a big record label with, you know, employees. It's, it's really just me and like a web designer. And I have distributors that I work with and, you know, they do the, the hard work on the ground. So all I really have to do is produce the albums, which is really my, my best skill at this point. Um, and so the film that you were asking me about earlier Mm -hmm. is about C. Del Davis, who was the last living blues man from that original generation. He's the same age as B.B. King, but he died um, in 2017 at the age of 92, right when we were in the middle of making the movie. And so we kind of paused for a little while, but now the film is done. We're submitting it to film festivals. Uh, We're hoping that it gets into the Seattle International Film Festival for this next year. And it's basically... Cdell in the studio at Avast Studios in Seattle, and I brought in all the Seattle heavyweights to play with him so that they could taste what that original Delta music was, which is the foundation for everything that came after that. Jazz, blues, R&B, rock and roll, country blues, hip hop. And so 
we brought in um, Duff McKagan and Peter Buck and Mike McCready and Evan Flurry Barnes and Aaron Jones and uh, who else? Scott McCoy. And then later we did recording sessions with the Black Tones and uh, Kathy Moore Power Trio. And it's really a cool movie. It's kind of like a, I would say like a, it's sort of a wisdom movie because Seidel just kind of gives us these pearls of wisdom while we're playing this music that's like from the 1930s, you know? And um, I, everybody that was in that studio was pretty profoundly affected by it. Like McCready, <sighs> Mike told me, Mike McCready said, man, he's like, I didn't know what to expect, but that was really one of the most profound musical experiences I've ever had in my life. And I think we all kind oh, of man. felt that because he, he literally is like the foundation of our entire careers. Like Duff does this interview where he says, he's like, I learned to play the blues and I made a 30 year career out of that, you know, with, <laughs> with Guns and Roses, you know, because of these men and women from the Mississippi Delta. Kind of got a chill when you said that, just, that's so great. And, and it reminds you, you, it reminds me of a lot of things, just you're, ne you're never too old to learn first off. That's right. Um, but so the footage, I'm really excited to see this. So the footage is in there with that. You can picture it. Cause like when yeah. you brought up the black tones, Eva's a friend of mine. And, um, I just think of them being able to be in the room. Uh, any of those musicians was, Oh my gosh. Well, they, unfortunately the black tones weren't there. Was that after it was after that, but we wanted yeah. to get people that had blues in their music, you know? So it's yeah. kind of like the film is like to showcase bands that have that blues root but then also with wisdom from the last living bluesman. So the film is called the last blues man. You know, it's interesting. You bring up some of those names too, and just how um, prolific some people from the Seattle scene, Duff being one of them that I think a lot of people here knew was a Seattle guy. He's, yeah. we, we, he's ours. He's Seattle guy. Um, but just how many, you know, McCready's a good example and Duff's a good example. You're a good example of just, this this group of musicians who seem to be trying everything and are involved in so many different projects and the collaborative nature makes sense we mentioned mad season and all the different offshoots that happen in the music scene what is that what is it what is this group of <laughs> warriors up here in the in the northwest that i mean maybe that's common everywhere but it's just from my vantage point something i've loved about being up here is yeah. is i remember the two atar records like looking at the musicians, I'm like, Oh, there's, there's Barrett from screaming trees and guy from Luna. And I'm, you know, and, and I'm, these are all rock bands that I listen to. And then I'm listening, you know, to this very different, this de very different sound, at least for me at the time, that was a great uh, entry for me, by the way. I love, I love some of those early records in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Tuatara was a cool project. I mean, yeah. like that the first two records had Peter Buck from REM, Justin from Luna, Steve Berlin from Los Lobos, Skerrick, yeah. of course, the ubiquitous <laughs> have to have him and then me and then you know other just we would just bring in people to like make those records but the to, to kind of go back to your question i think the, the closest comparison i can think of is kind of like the london scene in the 1960s where you had those great classic bands that were also heavily influenced by the blues because they picked up those blues records that were coming from world war ii with American sailors into Liverpool and Belfast and London. And then guys like Paul McCartney and John Lennon and Pete Townsend and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are buying these records and like heavily influenced by them. Cause to them, it sounds like this exotic foreign music um, from the other side of the water. 
and then they do their version of it. And so I always thought Seattle had a very bluesy, I mean, you listen to Alice in Chains, that's like a blues mm-hmm. band, you know? And Mad yeah, Season yeah. was totally a blues band. And McCready is heavily influenced by um, Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and Jimi Hendrix, and those guys were heavily influenced by the blues. I mean, I could keep going with that, but I mean, that's just sort of like the most obvious examples I can think of. But when you look at that London scene, you know, they all played together. They all made guest appearances on each other's records. They, that was like back when they did TV specials. Nobody does that anymore. But back <laughs> then they would like all get together and do the rock and roll circus or whatever. And somehow yeah. that vibe exists in Seattle where, because we all came up at the same time and, you know, our bands had different levels of success. But I think we all respected each other's musicianship. Yeah, I I love this conversation. This is I can nerd out on this all day. Um, Good. Yes. I love this concept of geography and place. Yeah. yeah. And and what comes out of that. But what we're talking about is human beings in a place with the relationships they have with each other, with the resources they have with each other, with the belief systems that they have, and then the music that is created out of that. Yeah. And then over time, how the music is traded and learned and passed along to other cultures and other people. But it's also this concept of place. And right now, currently, we're in such an online world that, you know, music and musicians, they're corresponding over the Internet. Right. Right. And that's fine. That's a great way to trade music and play music. But I think it's interesting to talk about I mean, we're gaining a lot by that, but are we losing something by not being in the place of origin? Does that make sense? And I guess yes. then we could get in, we could like spin out on what mm. is origin anyway, because everything's always changing. But what do you think about that? I totally agree with you on that. And, and I have two points to make about that. Number one, it is interesting that we haven't had a music scene the size of the Seattle music scene since Seattle that's located in a specific place. And it's interesting that that corresponds with the advent of the internet and social media. I mean, it's just like any tool. There's all kinds of great things that come from the internet. Like right now, we're talking and having this great conversation. Although we're all in Seattle right now. Although we're all in Seattle. So we're together alone. (laughs) We're together alone. (laughs) But, But there was something about all of us being in Seattle in, in a, I mean, we're talking about like not more than like a 10 square mile area and mm-hmm. we would go see each other play. I mean, like I, I would go out like three, four or five times a week and I still had a full-time job building houses like from 6 a.m. to whenever we got off work and I would go home, take a shower and go see a band play. And that chemistry and the synergy of that created this vortex of music that had plenty of time to like ferment and get going before the world even knew about it. And that's a really important thing that it, which is not to say that it can't happen again, but somehow things are a little more diffuse with the way the internet has intervened in our lives. The second thing I'll say is there is definitely a connection between the Mississippi Delta and the Pacific Northwest. And actually, I think you could even kind of make the connection to, um, to uh, the UK, because all three of those places are built around river systems. So the, obviously mm. the Mississippi is here, you know, we're, we're built around, you know, Puget Sound and Columbia River and England is very much a, a river country. 
And all three places were very working class places. They were not the, the wealthy, high tech, sophisticated places they are now. And I kind of miss that. So the music that came out of Seattle had a very working class roots to it. And I think it's interesting that at the same time that there was this music scene in the Delta, there was that huge music scene in Seattle on Jackson Street in the 1920s and 30s. There was also blues and jazz because working class people connect and understand that music. That's why you could have all those clubs on Jackson Street that were packed every night, probably with longshoremen's and sailors and loggers and you know people that worked in Seattle and wanted to go see good music. And when I've gone to the Delta, it's totally the same thing. People go see music down there. It's like a totally mixed audience. It's black and white. It's young. It's old. Everybody is there to see really good blues music. So even though, you know, we're separated by a few thousand miles, the social geography isn't so different. I actually, I think there, there are more similarities than not. The timing of the internet and social media in Seattle, the scene, I actually was having this thought that I never even put the two together. But when I think about what went on here, I, I had this question to myself, like, is, has that gone on since? And it's, it hasn't, you absolutely not. Nothing on the scale of Seattle. I mean, yeah. you've had little music scenes, like there was, sure. you know, the Brooklyn scene and that, that little yep. scene that was kind of up in Nova Scotia. And, and uh, I mean, here's the thing. There's always, every city has great musicians. I mean, you, you can go to any city in the United States and you'll find a great musician there. Um, but that's not the same thing as a scene. A scene is like, and I mean, I, I have strong opinions about this, about what happened to Seattle, because my definition of a music scene is when the, the musicians and the bands can create and rehearse and make albums and have, you know, like a, a decent standard of living in the city that they're from. And that isn't really the case in Seattle anymore. A lot of people have had to leave the city and live a long ways away. And even though there's still great bands in Seattle and great musicians, and there's always going to be new and upcoming artists, like we don't have the same infrastructure you know, we've, we've lost recording studios. Like I just produced an album in Nashville because there wasn't a studio comparable in Seattle and there, and there used to be, you know, um, and it doesn't mean that there can't, they can't come back, but it's hard to build that infrastructure once, once it's taken away. Yeah. You kind of have that hopeful future Seattle feeling I have where I don't, I yeah. don't want to get down on the, how yeah. it's because it, you know, yeah. a lot of people just shit on the city and say right. like, it's over. I don't have that. And, right. and in fact, that's, you know, one of the reasons uh, we opened a bar for right. instance, right. like it, it, it felt like all those places were gone. So instead of me continually bitching about it, all the places I missed, right. we were like, well, let's try to open something up and try to do this. And I've clearly part of an institution that's been in this city for 50 years too. So right. it's easy for me. I have, right. I have right. a, you, you have some connections. Yeah. The station has stayed <laughs> pretty core to who the city is and has become yeah. while holding on to its yeah. roots. So I yeah. feel I, I have a very strong opinion of that as well. Well, yeah. And I agree with that. I totally agree. I'm of the same belief. Like, like it's important to like see what needs to be done and work yeah. towards that. That's right. That's yeah. Right. I, you know, you can't really, as a band, um, sign a contract and take a deposit from your um, consumers right? while you right. make a record, right? Like right. the economy of music making doesn't really work like that. Right. Um, and I, you know, and, and you 
and a lot of musicians are dependent on labels or producers or, you know, and I think about this a lot, like how, you know, if you, if you took a different economy, you took a different business model of how people made money, right? In theory, musicians would be getting either paid by the hour (laughs) or they'd be paid project based. And that's kind of how they're paid now, but it, it goes at the expense of, having to pay the people who are helping them make it happen first. Right. right. And, and unless they're touring and selling merch, a lot of that's not going back to the band unless they quote, like make it bigger or whatever. But I find it fascinating how we don't treat musicians the same way we treat other economies. Right. And that we've kind of right. let it come to this. Right. Does that make sense that yeah. art and music isn't valued in the same way that musicians can't go to the practice space and get paid by the hour? At least, right? <laughs> well, right. And there's, okay, so there's a couple ways to look at that through the lens of ethnomusicology. So a society's ascension or declination can be measured yeah. in its music and in the quality of it right. and also in the way that society treats its musicians. The United States or is- Or values re- it. Exactly. And the United States is really unique in that it has this very reductive capitalistic viewpoint of how you should become a successful musician, but they don't respect the musicians until they're like famous and, you know, have survived the gauntlet, so to speak. But we, you know, we gut our, our arts funding and, and, you know, we, we tear down buildings where bands rehearsed and then they don't know where to rehearse, you know, like it's that kind of, it's like, these small decisions over time make a big difference in, in, in the long game of it all. But like, for example, um, the music business, when, when I got into it in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, I mean, all the major labels were, they were kind of run by gangsters, you know, they were kind of like mafia. They, they were, I mean, they literally were connected to the mafia under the guise of, you know, like, well, it's a corporation, like now it's legitimate, you know? And then in the last like 10 years, it's t- gone totally like corporate gangster and there, and there's just like three major labels, you know, that have like, you know, absorbed all these other, but what hasn't changed is that the revenue streams all still go through the distributors, which are now digital. And it, it still is filtered before it ever gets to the bands and the musicians. So, so the business models are way worse I mean, I kind of liked when I dealt with the gangsters because we'd go in and have meetings and be like, OK, here's here's what we need to, like, you know, pay for this record. And pay, and they're like, OK, and they'd write a check, you know, but it doesn't work that way anymore. Mm. And I'm not it's, trying it's... to give the impression that I'm like in the mafia or anything like that. But but like, but like, we... I still owe them a lot of money. So I have to be really nice. <laughs> oh, we could, we could talk the mafia. about the medical system. I won't go down that road. That's but... probably a I want... paral- similar parallel. Yeah. But they're the filter between the patient and the treatment or Mm -hmm. the the music lover and the music creator. And I would argue that the music creator is creating a kind of treatment. It's a health benefit, you know? Well, I was going to, I was going to ask you about that. You know, this idea that we feel strongly here and I, and I know you feel the same about music healing, that, that music indeed can heal. And I, I have, I have thought that, and I wasn't very, I didn't talk a lot about it, like on my radio show or, but I have seen, especially the last couple of years, I have seen this healing properties on people. And I realize I think it took taking live music away from all of us that, that helped 
remind me of this, the, the meditative nature of a live show. Like I never saw it ever as a meditation to be in a show. Right. And now I can't, it makes total sense how much I love live music. I'm in a community. My mind is clear. I am in the moment. I am music is coming through me. I mean, it's, it's, it's right. meditation. And I think I'm learning that throughout my life, music have saved my life. And if that's not healing, I, I don't know what is. I mean, being at the musicologist, seeing music around the world, I know this isn't isolated. This is universal, correct? Yeah, totally. And, and, and man, I mean, yeah, I could tell you, and I will, I'll tell you a short story about, you know, healing in the Peruvian Amazon. But I mean, I've gotten so many emails from people that would say, like with the Mad Season record, they say like, man, that record saved my life. And I'm not kidding, it saved my life. And one time I met these guys in, um, it was in Italy. I think they were in Trieste, Italy, but they were from uh, Slovenia, which was the former Yugoslavia. And they told me how like during the civil war in, you know, between Serbia and Bosnia and Croatia and all the horrors that were happening, yeah. that was like in the early mid 1990s, these guys had one cassette tape. And on one side of the cassette was Pearl Jam's 10 album. And the other side of the tape was Screaming Trees, Sweet Oblivion. And these guys would climb to the top of a hill. There was a tree that they would sit under this tree at the top of the hill and watch all the Civil War fighting that was going on down in the city and listen to that tape over and over again on their little boombox until they wore it out. That's the only music they had. And, and they, but they were like the most happy joyous guys and one of them we were trying to find Lanigan and Lanigan had been in a bar drinking and we it was time to play the show and we couldn't find Lanigan and he shows up like on the back of a moped driven by one of these guys from Yugoslavia and they're like we found Lanigan here he is and so they, they like drove him up to the stage and like after the show these guys tell me this story about how huh. we survived the civil war by listening to Pearl Jam and Screaming Trees you know and then the Peruvian Amazon thing, you know, the shamans down there, they get their songs from the rainforest and the spirit of the trees and the animals and the flowers and the herbs. And they say that the spirit of that tree or plant or animal is singing to them the way to heal with that song. And so the, the songs are a natural embodiment of the rainforest. And so when they you know, people go there from all over the world to be treated for all kinds of things like cancer and, and mental illnesses and, and chronic, you know, health problems. And the shamans all say it's the rainforest that heals them. We're just the, we're just channeling the rainforest. And everywhere that I've ever been, you know, like mostly the music is about healing as, as far as indigenous music goes. Like I'm not talking about music that's made to, to be sold, which, I mean, I make music to be sold, but I consider the music I do to, to have a healing quality to it. So whenever I've worked with people producing their records, like I'm, I'm producing this record in Nashville with a Cuban artist, but the bass player is Chris Novoselic and the guitar player is Peter Buck. But I tell them like, we're making this rock record, but let's follow some patterns that are in indigenous music, like the concept of moities, like equal balanced halves, and that we're trying to convey this message of positivity and power, even though it might be like a really rockin' song. But the intentionality that you put into it changes the outcome of the recording. So even if you're using drums, electric bass, guitar, and vocals, 
the intention and the power of the song is changed because of the way you approach the making of the song before you play a single note. So I've always tried to, I mean, not always, because when I was younger, I didn't know this stuff. But once I started to go deep into that world, I saw that that was really the authentic part of music that I wanted to, as much as I could support that, that's what I wanted to do. Can you talk about Still Point? And there's a book that's going along with it, right? A short yeah. story. It's called Still Point, yeah. Reflections from a Year on the Cliff. Yeah. Is, it, is the cliff, the, is, is that, it's is that meta- an actual cliff? Yeah, it- it's an actual cliff and it's metaphorical. Oh, okay. So, I don't know, is the pandemic cliff or were you on a cliff? It's and were bo- there crocodiles and alligators? Because with you, it could have been all the above. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when my wife and I got married, we kind of just traveled for a couple of years. You know, we went to South America a couple of times and... and um, all over North America and Southeast Asia. And we came back to the Northwest and we didn't know exactly where we wanted to kind of settle down permanently. I, I had moved out of Seattle and, and we, um, we rented this incredible house that was on the edge of the cliff on the Northern Washington Peninsula. Literally the backyard was a 200 foot cliff down to the ocean. We could see the lights of Victoria, BC and the San Juan Islands, like right there. And it was mm-hmm. in an animal sanctuary. There were like half a dozen bald eagles that lived in the tree right above our house. So every day there were bald eagles just like hanging out in the trees. And there was a herd of deer that lived somewhere close because they were always in our backyard. And there were hawks and owls and ravens and coyotes and, and the largest garter snake I've ever seen in my life. It was like four feet long and as thick as a garden hose. And it just lived in the bushes like by the front door. And I was always terrified that I'd see it, but I only saw it twice, you know. And in the, the year and a half that we lived out there, my wife wrote a book and I wrote the Still Point book, which is short stories about my childhood growing up on the Olympic Peninsula. But mm. I also made the record that goes with it, which is the Still Point CD. And on those songs, I had to play all of the instruments because, you know, we were isolated. Um, everything was locked down. So I had to record it, engineer it, perform it, play all the instruments except for the trumpet. And my wife played percussion. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a one man album. I, um, I want to jump in here because a couple things. So we were talking about music and healing. So the first thing I want to say about that is, you know, I think of how important our nervous system is to healing. Yes. Because it is ultimately what we're either connecting to our survival instincts on or our other survival instincts, which I think of as the intuition and like allowing allowing ourselves to sort of tap into like that human vibration and create things in our life, right? Um, Or come up with ideas, right? Which is also how we survive. Run from the tiger and also slow down enough that you can listen to that inner voice or whatever. And so it's like, I think about health really, really is based on your nervous system. Like if you can get your nervous system calibrated, then everything else can fall into place. And music really helps with that because music is a vibration. Right, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the second piece is I, I'm also a craniosacral practitioner, and there is a term we use called still point. And oh, I didn't know yeah. if you know about this or because everything you're talking about, like somewhere intuitively you know about it, but I didn't know if you actually knew about what still point was because I saw the title of your book. And I'm like, oh, yeah. 
Well, point. I know the 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 Zen and the Tibetan Buddhist way of viewing still point, which is like when the mind becomes perfectly still and is pure awareness, but isn't clouded with thought. And this is what we do when we do Zen meditation. We try to get to where the mind is completely awake and aware, but isn't hearing the chatter. And, you know, it's taken me years and years of meditation to get to that point. And sometimes it just lasts briefly and sometimes a few minutes. Um, I really got into meditating um, and just looking at the ocean. The ocean really has that effect on me anyway. It's like really helps slow me, slow down the mind. Because when, when the chatter stops, absolute eternal mind emerges. And, you know, that's the mind that continues after death. It's the thing that is eternal, that is always awake and aware. But in this human form, it's just clouded with all of the, the chatter of the world. That's right. Um, so in craniosacral therapy... It's hands-on therapy of really, really light touch. And what a craniosacral therapist is feeling for is the cranial rhythm. And that rhythm, what it is, is it's, it's a sensation from the cerebral spinal fluid. Because your cerebral spinal fluid is going up and down your spine and into your brain and into the ventricles of your brain and then back out. And there's, there's absorption of nutrients. There's taking out the trash. There's all kinds of things that your cerebral spinal fluid is doing in your body. And you can actually sense the rhythm of that process. And the first time I ever felt it totally freaked me the fuck out, to be honest, because part of me was a little skeptical, like, okay, what is this shit? You know, put our hands on people and we can feel something, you know, because I was used to feeling the pulse from your cardiovascular system, right? You can feel a heartbeat, you can feel a pulse, right? And to feel that is incredible, but in craniosacral therapy still point is when you can get that rhythm, you get to the, it to wane down and to pause. And that's when the nervous system, like it, like you said in, in your meditation, that it just kind of stops. Yes. It just stops for just like a moment. And a lot of when we're practicing craniosacral, we, are, we try to get to still point with people because it really helps calm the nervous system down. Yes. And a huge amount of information comes in when you're in still point. I mean, it sounds cliche, but you actually realize the truth that you actually are the entire universe. You're not, you're not separate from it. You're literally made from the dust of an exploding star. And, and you, you just kind of are awakening to that reality. And it's amazing. But we just don't get there often enough. I mean, no, I mean meditation. Monkey mind. Yeah, monkey mind. And, and meditation is still like this kind of fringe thing in the United States. But yet in the ancient world, it's been practiced for thousands of years. You know, but we're so caught with... I mean, just materialism and consumerism and social media and a constant need to be constantly stimulated or validated or, or you know, the, the endorphin rush of buying something, you know, and, and we're totally missing the point of this, which is to, like, really care about each other and to care about the earth and to care about our environments and our communities. I mean, that's, that is the most important, most sacred stuff. Well, Barrett, I, I appreciate your outlook and it's, um, 
it's what, why you're one of my favorite people out there and the musicians or otherwise. And I, and you mentioned those moments and I, I have to mention, I mean, Barrett knows a little bit about this, but he's been actually performing at three different life changing moments of mine. Um, oh, what are they? The, the, well, the first was when I, you know, in Spokane and I got a chance to tell you this yeah. or someone did. Uh, and when I saw the screaming trees, uh, love battery was opening. So I at the Met in Spokane, my friends had gone there. I'd been just, I had been, I dropped out of high school. I was, um, I didn't know it was depression and then thoughts of, of ending my life and, and just some really, I was in a really bad place and didn't know what to do. And my brother started sending me music. He had moved up to Seattle. And so was sending me, you know, the bleach record and every good boy yeah. deserves fudge from mud honey. And anyway, but then I, you know, I went, my first show was a Jane's Addiction show. It was the very first show. But my second show was at the Met to see the Screaming Trees play with this unknown band who I got to know later, uh, Love Battery. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, Jane's Addiction, I was scared for my life. So I just stayed in the back. <laughs> like, oh, my God, there's spikes and leather and it's just everyone's jumping on each other. What the fuck is going on? I'm just going to hide here. Um, Screaming Trees, I got in it. It was just, I'd never experienced anything like that where everyone... And I, in Spokane, I thought it'd be me and my couple of buddies. Like, nobody knows who bands are from Seattle. And it was, it was like, a, I don't know, a few hundred of us just, it was one of the best nights of my life, no question. And um, and then a couple of years pass, and I, I'm working at this uh, little uh, this chicken restaurant up in Wallingford. And the Mary, he said her boyfriend works security at the Croc, this new club. He's like, there's this band, and they're playing, and it's like, I think it's like Pearl Jam guys, and like a Trees guy. And like, a, you know, I said, yeah. so, whatever, Alice in Chains. I'm like, good enough for me. And so I was the first person standing there and for, I, you were still Gacy's Bunch at the time in some unknown band called the Presidents of the United States of America. Oh, was yeah, that's that right. Show. That's right. And then a sign went up, said Pearl Jam's not playing. I went, oh, we're staying now. If they have to put up a sign that says Pearl Jam's not playing. Anyway, my brother told me the story later because I had forgotten this because he was on the other side of the conversation. I was just really happy. And we saw you all play and it was just everything I love about music and the crowd was so good and yeah. so in the moment and you were all in the moment. And I turned to my brother and I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't want to do anything else. This is, this is going to be it. You know, I didn't work at the station. I didn't do anything like I didn't do. I was just a guy in the crowd and y'all just seeing you up there and seeing the, just the energy of that crowd. And yeah, it changed my life, that show. Um, and, and then the last one was my favorite KXP moment's oh, got to yeah. be on the top of the Pike Place Market. That was so, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the Stooges, yeah. for those who weren't, don't know, the Stooges cover night raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the new home that we built. Uh, and what a band, man. Mark Arm in as Iggy. You know, we yeah. had Duff, we had Mike, yeah. we had you. It was like the super group up on top of the Pike Place Market. And that to me was like peak Seattle. I mean, it was the most Seattle thing ever. What a great that that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like that's a music scene that right yeah. there, that whole thing was about supporting KEXP and playing a show for like, I mean, there was like 10,000 people that showed up and it like, yeah. had to, it walked <laughs> off like two or three blocks of Seattle. It was, and, and people were hanging out of the windows uh, of giant buildings. And, I know. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, it was so fun to play those songs too. And McCready said, Oh, we're, uh, you know, we're going to do more shows. And I'm like, please, you know, we, we're still waiting <laughs> to do another show, you know? 
but it, may, it reminded me when you looked out on that crowd too, and just what you said, it's, it's just a, it reminded yeah. me and, and we were building a new home. So it was like, this is yeah. everything I love about this town. So you, you've been around for a lot of those moments and I really Man, appreciate I'm honored. that. I'm honored that I just happened to be in the room. You know? It's like, <laughs> you're always around, you're always around when something's happening, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Amy, you got anything else? No, I just, what came out of that show on top of the Pike Place Market, I was there. I was climbing in and out of the window. Yeah. And um, at the end of that, you gave John your drumsticks. That's right. That's oh, yeah, home. that's right. Yep. And then our, so we have your drumsticks in our house. And we have this funny story. We might have shared this with you before, but. Um, I don't know if we in, did. In I shared old, it on the air, though. On our In our <laughs> old house. Was it the dryer? The whole thing, like our dryer was losing its mind. Like it was. Believe it or not, this it relates. That's to you. true. This has something to do. With and you the know. dryer somehow was on. It was going crazy, and it was. It, it seemed almost dangerous. Like it was things were You're getting like, yeah, with the bearings were gonna go. Yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. like, what? This thing's gonna, you know. And we're not the best with these kind of things. So I'm just like trying to get in there and figure out what's going on. And finally, I figure out like, Amy, your underwear has has jammed in there so far into this thing that the whole thing's going to go. And I'm like panicking because we had- It was like thong underwear. It was like yeah, all it was wrapped like around. Up in there like... And it was like, I don't know what to do here. And I look over to my, I look over, I go, I got the perfect tool. Because you had broken one of the sticks, it, it was it there. It had a jagged oh, edge. Yeah. It had a jagged edge. Right. And so I was able to, it's the perfect tool to dig out underwear out of a dryer, fixed it like that. So- you, know, you do these things, you don't know the impact they're going to have on a human's hey, lives. Hey, this guy has rebuilt engines before. <laughs> That's so, right. you yes. know. We're on the same page. His, well, his drumsticks are going to fix our, our dryer. Glad they have multiple usages. And <laughs> I, I, I don't frequently break drumsticks anymore, but I did at that show a few. Yeah, you did. But I, it was nice. It was a really great event. The, I mean, and I mean event is in like the whole thing, you know, the dinner and the, all the people. Yeah. And it was just like really, yeah. really special. And that's the thing, like just to, you know, say a positive thing about music scenes, like, like uh, I, I wasn't able to make it because I was in a studio session, but, you know, the crocodile just had their big grand opening. And so yeah. I just looked at photos online and I was like, wow, like that's amazing. And, you know, and the managing partner is Adam Wakeling, who used to be my tour manager, you know? And so it's like <laughs> yeah. really cool to see like the same people, but just doing something different and building it and making it better. And I, I really that's think right. that's what we have to do. You know, there, there's always going to be incredible music from the Northwest. I mean, like, like we say down here in Olympia, it's in the water, you know, there's this thing that great musicians come out of the Northwest and are drawn to come here. Um, we just have to, you know, preserve that and protect that, like continue to raise the next generation up and make sure that they have what they need to be great, to be truly great. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. That's a great way to end it. And uh, thanks for spending so much time with us today. We could talk yeah, forever. I really Maybe enjoyed it, actually. I love, I love <laughs> these kind of interviews where we're just like having a... Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. Okay. We'll let you go now. Thank you. Happy, Thank you. Have nice a great to see you. Christmas. All right. See you later. Barrett Martin for hanging out with us today. We talked a lot more than that off the mic. 
I, I never get tired of talking to Barrett Martin. I could talk to him all day. We pretty much did all day. If you're still listening to three people who are still tuned into this podcast, I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> no, hopefully you, you stuck with it because uh, Barrett's the best. And uh, we really recommend his new record and his book. And um, whenever you see his name around something, you know it's going to be good. And I'm looking forward to seeing some music from him. I haven't seen him play live in quite a while, but it was a real honor to have him up on the podcast. We also want to thank our sponsors, Wonderground, who makes the most delicious mushroom coffee and tea. We had some this morning. It tasted very good. Their products are crafted to inspire moments of wonder from day to night, and uh, they are trying to be both healthy and wake you up all at the same time. It's a pretty great thing. Um, And you can go to their location. I was just there the other day, uh, Wonderground Cafe, located on Capitol Hill at East Pike between 11th and 12th. Dr. Wonder gets you a discount at 10%. Guess who forgot to use the 10% discount when he went and picked up coffee the other day? Can you just go, do you know who I am? I I, I just just pointed at me and and then they didn't give me the discount. So that'll learn you. Um, And you can also go online and use that as well. But we want to thank them. And of course, our friends. Ruinous Media. Yep. Joe, Pat, and Chris. And Jay. Jay Cox. Thanks all of you for helping out on the Doctor DJ Michael Lerner and uh, Telekinesis for the music theme you hear here on the Doctor and the DJ. We hope you will follow us, the Doctor and the DJ, on Instagram. We're very busy there, and make sure you follow us as well, DJ John Richards and Doctor Amy Lindsay on Instagram. Is that it? That's it. Here's Barrett Martin.